Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Economics, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Sydney Michelini, and today I have Dr. Graciela Chichilinitsky um, here today to talk about her new book, Reversing Climate Change, How Carbon Removals Can Resolve Climate Change and Fix the Economy. She is the co-founder and CEO of a company called Global Thermostat and co-creator of a carbon renewal technology that can reverse climate change. This is pretty exciting. This technology was chosen by MIT Technology Review as one of the 10 breakthrough technologies of 2019, a list created by Bill Gates. She is also a professor of economics and mathematical statistics at Columbia University and director of the Columbia Consortium for Risk Management. Um, As a side note, she's also taught and lectured at several dozen other places. She also acted as the lead author of the United States, um, or sorry, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which received the 2007 Nobel Prize for its work in, dis- in deciding world policy with respect to climate change. And she worked extensively on the Kyoto Protocol, creating and designing the carbon market that became international law in 2005. She is the author of more than 300 scientific articles. And as someone working on my first, I can tell you how impressive that is. And more than 15 books, including this one. And she has also authored a book called Saving Kyoto, which won the American uh, Library Association's 2010 Outstanding Academic Title of the Year and the American Geographical Society's Book of the Month Award in 2009. She holds two PhDs in mathematical mathematics and economics, and her graduate studies were at MIT and the University of California, Berkeley. Graciela, welcome to the show. Um, if you want to start out by telling us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you came to write this book and get interested in this, that would be lovely. Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me. I wrote this book because we are entering a completely new stage in the climate um, change problem in which we are very close to a catastrophe, as everybody knows. And in fact, some catastrophes are starting to occur already. And I think everybody has heard, for example, about the wildfires um, in California and the very rapid and enormously volatile storms and um, that are occurring all over the world. And uh, this is all attributed now to climate change. So we know it's happening now. Furthermore, since I was, as you mentioned, a lead author representing the US at the Intergovernmental Panel of Climate Change of the United Nations, I knew from from 2006 that it's no longer possible to prevent the worst catastrophic effects simply by reducing emissions that are ongoing now. This is what we try to do in the Kyoto Protocol, and we had an enormous success, but only for about 25-30% of the world population. And therefore, uh, right now, both the United States Academy of Sciences and the United Nations 
Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, have produced reports saying that reducing emissions is no longer enough, that what we have to do is remove massive amount of CO2 from the atmosphere, legacy CO2, CO2 that is already there because we have overshot, we have not acted fast enough. So that led me to create Global Thermostat, the company that you mentioned, which has a uh, world breakthrough technology that removes CO2 from the atmosphere in a cost-effective way, so it can increase economic progress and provide jobs, no jobs. But in addition, um, that technology is now commercially being adopted, adopted fast by some of the largest companies in the world. And we are working now with companies like ExxonMobil, Saudi Aramco and Aqua, the Coca-Cola company, Siemens, AME, and even Porsche and Volkswagen, Black and & Veitch, and other large engineering firms in executing commercially the removal of massive CO2 that is now needed, according to the uh, National Academy of Sciences and the UN IPCC. We are executing on that with all these companies. However, what we are doing is pretty difficult, actually, as you can imagine, cleaning the atmosphere and doing it in a way that doesn't hurt the economy, on the contrary. And therefore, I found that most people don't understand what we're doing. Even though it was forecasted in my first book that got all those awards, the Saving Kyoto, I realized that people didn't understand what is it that we have to do and what does it mean to remove massive amount of CO2 from the atmosphere, which is what is now accepted by the National Academy and the United Nations as well. So I decided to write a book to explain everything in an orderly fashion and to keep a record for the future and for the present of why did we create Global Thermostat? Why did I co-invent that extraordinary path-breaking technology that we mentioned? Why removal of CO2? Can this be done? And most of the, com- of the questions that you ask here, Sydney, are really answered in the book. I'm happy to answer them, but I wrote that book because people were asking the same questions over and over again. So I got a clear impression that I needed to put the answers in one place about how to resolve climate change. In fact, reverse it, which is a word that was used by Forbes, referring to Global Thermostat, our company, reversing climate change and fixing the economy at the same time. That's what the book tries to do. And I certainly hope when you read it, and I hope you read it, you will find that it does, to a certain extent, what it's intending to do. No, I would say having gone through the book and, and read through what you've said, that that is, that is something you succeeded at. Um, for our audience, would you, you start out the book by laying out climate change as an intergenerational trade-off problem. Um, would you talk a little bit more about that for our, for our listeners and how it is that we conceive of 
We have in the past conceived of climate change as an intergenerational problem um, to get a little technical using discount rates and attempting to sort of like solve some sort of long-term trade-off model and how you're proposing that we look at it as something we can't really afford not to deal with. That's right. Traditionally, climate change was viewed as a pool uh, of war between the future and the present. It was believed to be a problem that would affect us only in the future and for which the cost of finding a solution would only be borne by the present. So climate change was viewed as a problem where the present suffers costs and the future gets the benefit. And if you wish, that's the intergenerational trade-off problem because you have to decide whether you're going to hurt the economy today and help the survival of the future humans or not. So that's the tug of war. An intergenerational trade-off. The generation number one is the present, generation number two is the future. That's why it's called intergenerational trade-off. But in reality, since the book was uh, written following Saving Kyoto, and following my writing of the carbon market into the Kyoto Protocol, which is now the European Union emission trading system, the situation changed. The lines between the present and the future are now blurred. The future is here, today. The future is the present, now. And climate change is in the present. So we no longer have that intergenerational trade-off problem. We have a more serious problem, which is all the generations, present or future, that we care about and that we are part of, are now being affected in major ways. Perhaps the major catastrophe is still a little bit into the future, but not much. We are really talking about the next decade being decisive for whether or not the worst catastrophic events can be avoided. And let's be clear, the worst catastrophic avoid, uh, events that we're trying to avoid are, for example, the extinction, massive extinction of species, including our own species. So this is pretty serious. As I said, it used to be an intergenerational problem, the present and the future, no more. The future is here today. It is the present and the future together that we are affecting and we are changing through the continuous emissions and the lack of adoption of the policies that are proposed here and that the National Academy and the United Nations say are the only possible solution now, which is massive removal of CO2 from the atmosphere. As it turns out, global thermodynamics Global thermostat, because we knew all this from my work at the IPCC and at the Kyoto Protocol, designed its technology so is now the, possibly the number one contributor to the solution, removing massive amounts of CO2 from the atmosphere as is needed now, as the UN and the National Academy in the US agree fully. So now that we agree, what's missing? And the answer is not small. 
What's missing is the execution. We add into the execution, we created a technology. The technology actually doesn't hurt the economy. Repeat, removing CO2 from the atmosphere does not hurt the economy. Therefore, the Bert Hegel law that was created in 1997 against the Kyoto Protocol, because it was believed that it would hurt the economy, is no longer a problem. In fact, we support the Bert Hegel law in the US. We think that this can have a major effect in helping the current global recession and the solution to many energy issues in the economy, including the large issues of poverty, enormous issue of poverty, and the lack of satisfaction of basic needs, a concept that I created, um, by 1.3 billion people in the world economy that are in the, in, in the border between survival and extinction. So all of this says the technology exists, the policy is being defined, including financial policy that I can talk about. Now is the moment of truth. Are we going to execute or not? And we seem to be executing. So the real issue here is, will we do it fast enough to prevent the worst catastrophic effects that can lead to the extinction of millions of species, including our own? Are we going to do it fast enough? That's the question. That is indeed an incredibly important question. Um, However, it is a question that has been sitting with us for some time now. Climate change did not show up yesterday, um, and it won't go away tomorrow, unfortunately. But um, would you talk about your work um, in some of the earlier attempts to combat climate change through the reduction of emissions, um, namely through the Kyoto Protocol? Um, And then maybe if you want to mention how that fed in and led up to the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015. I really actually would like to give our audience some background because you were integral to this process yourself um, of the things that we have done and um, where they've succeeded and where you think they've fallen short. Thank you. Um, Well, first of all, I want to remind the audience that in the year 1992, the international community created an agreement to remove chlorofluorocarbon emissions that were destroying the ozone layer that protects us against the the noxious uh, emissions, radiation from the sun. That was the Montreal Agreement, and it succeeded. And it succeeded in the same way that we can have the success now by introducing technologies that were simultaneously cleaning the atmosphere of chlorofluorocarbons and they were cost-effective in economic terms. Most, as as you may know, the CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons, are important for the refrigeration industry. So the industry created new chemicals that were not damaging the ozone layer. So it is obvious that that is what has to be done now. And it's equally obvious that's what we're doing. So in a way, what we're doing is not new. What is new is that instead of being the removal of CFCs, which is very important, extremely important, and was very successful, 
Now we have to do something that is orders of magnitude more serious, which is the removal of CO2 from the atmosphere. And the reason is more serious is because energy is essentially the basis of economic progress for humans, has always been. Since we were hunter-gatherers in the agricultural society, in the industrial revolution, and in the knowledge revolution now, energy is critical. And it's critical to reduce and to redress the enormous cruel problem of poverty that is plaguing us in the world this extraordinarily important right now. So energy is it. Energy is mostly produced through power plants. The infrastructure in the world economy that produces power plants is about $60 trillion with T.S. in Tom worth trillion dollars. And until now, over 90% of that infrastructure was burning fossil fuels. Namely, it was emitting CO2. And most of the emissions of CO2 come from that source. So the cruel choice was that we had to reduce energy availability for humans in order to limit the emissions that came from burning fossil fuels. That was totally cruel, but it's no longer needed. That choice is not really what's needed now. And what happened in that period is the Kyoto Protocol. The year 1997, we negotiated, the international community negotiated an agreement to limit emissions by 5% below what was the emission total of the world economy at that time. If you read December 2019, fast forward, the Physics Today, a magazine read by physicists all over the world, there is an article there validating that that goal was achieved, that the carbon market of the Kyoto Protocol, which is now called the European Union Emission Trading System, succeeded in reducing the emissions of CO2 so that this year, 2020, the emissions of CO2 by the nations that participate in the Kyoto Protocol carbon market reduced by 20% below the emissions those countries had in the year 1997. So the year that the Kyoto Protocol was created and we tried to reduce the emissions by 5%, fast forward to, to, to 2020, the carbon market nations did it, they succeeded. And they didn't grow any less, for example, than the United States, who never ratified the Kyoto Protocol and didn't join the carbon market. So the carbon market was a success. Says who? The physicists all over the world are measuring the carbon emissions from the Kyoto nations, the nations that adopted the carbon market. And their growth as well is comparable to the rest, but didn't hurt, but the emissions drop 20% below what they were in 1997. That is called success. The carbon market of the Kyoto Protocol, very successful in leading, in removing CO2 and in reversing climate change. But that's for the nations who joined the carbon market. 
And as I said, the European Union did. Extraordinary. Now, not only did the Kyoto nations decrease their emissions by 20% from what it was 23 years ago in 1997, just think about it. But in addition to that, the clean development mechanism, and I believe that's one of the questions number seven that you gave to me, was a mechanism in which the money that was traded would go into a fund, and the fund uh, would be used to send uh, investment resources to developing nations for technologies, private technology, private uh, projects, technologies that would uh, remove or, in, in that case, decrease carbon emissions. So the clean development mechanism allocated billions of hundreds of billions of US dollars, nearly a trillion over the period since 1997, rather 2005, when the Kyoto Protocol became international law, which still is. So the clean development mechanism allocated hundreds of billions of dollars to developing nations, poor nations, for the creation of projects that would reduce the emissions of CO2. And it succeeded beyond anybody's expectation. A lot of those hundreds of billions of dollars went to China and created a lot of debate because the European nations, as well as the United States, the OECD nations, did not like the idea of sending so much money to China, even though China was at the time and still is a poor nation in terms of the uh, income per capita, poor nation. Many people in China are very poor, as well as the nation itself on average. So in China, the reception of that money was very intelligent. They used the money to build tens of thousands of solar photovoltaic plants. And in the last 12 years, tens of thousands of solar photovoltaic plants were built in China creating what is now known as the Chinese solar revolution. So for the first time in human history, energy produced from the sun directly, solar photovoltaic, is now more effective, more cost-effective, lower cost than the energy that is produced by fossil fuels from all those plants that I mentioned before. In fact, the cost of producing electricity from solar energy today in 2020 for the first time in history is lower than the cost of producing electricity from petroleum, natural gas, or even coal, which is extraordinary. It's about two cents per kilowatt hour. It is a true revolution. And the Kyoto Protocol Clean Development Mechanism contributed hundreds of billions of dollars to that process. You say, why does it have such a fraught history? I tell you why. Because it was believed that not, it was not right to send all that funding to China, but that funding created the solar revolution we have today. And the fact that from now on, no power plant will be lower cost than the power plants that use solar energy. 
with the result that that $60 trillion infrastructure that is the biggest energy producing infrastructure in the world, the power plants, and that is until now the biggest of all emitters in all uh, the industrial societies in the world, in fact, in the whole world. It's about 50% of the emission of CO2 comes from them, not 50, but somewhere between 45 and 50%. The biggest emitters are the power plants. Until now, over 90% of those fossil fuel. In the year 2020, as we speak, no longer fossil fuel. Why? Because it's cheaper to produce electricity in 2020 from the sun due to the Chinese revolution, which was in partly, in part, uh, created from the funding that the clean development mechanism of the carbon market made available to the poor developing countries over that period. The Chinese revolution benefited from that. And now the whole world is benefiting from the solar revolution. Yes, that infrastructure, that $60 trillion infrastructure, the power plants that are responsible for most of the climate change issue is now going to be transformed and will cease to emit CO2. So this is happening as we speak, but it's only starting to happen. And because that infrastructure is so huge, it's about $60 trillion worth, it's going to take longer to change all those power plants that normally last 20, maybe 30 years into solar plants. We have to change the infrastructure. And that will be longer than the time we have because we need to act in the next decade, end up removing by 2030, 2040, we need to remove gigatons of CO2. By 2040, we should be removing about 40 gigatons of CO2. These are not exact numbers, obviously, but 40 gigaton means 40 billion tons, tons of CO2 that have to be removed. That's what I mentioned is massive removal. But please understand, the Kyoto Protocol and its carbon market already succeeded in their purpose of reducing emissions through the carbon market. It happened. And if the whole world had adopted the Kyoto Protocol, which it didn't because the biggest emitter at that point, the United States, did not ratify it, we would have no climate change problem. And if the whole world will use now the solar photovoltaic energy for power plants that is completely clean, that is available in 2020 and lower cost than fossil fuels in producing electricity, the problem of climate change will go away as of now. So what is it? It's time. The problem we have is not technology, it's not money, it's time. And this time is actually impossible to change. You can't change time. And we have to do in one decade or two decades what normally may take four or five decades. And by the time you get to the third and the fourth decade with the 450 or above, the massive catastrophic results of climate change with the North and the South Pole melting, with the oceans increasing by the end of the century, by 10 meters, which means New York, where I usually live, is going to be underwater, and most cities in the world as well, or it will be too late. We cannot redress that.
we cannot rebuild New York City to be 10 meters higher as a whole. So the bottom line is we have a time problem. And what we need, we know we are in, in a good position, very hopeful, very optimistic about technology and knowing what we have to do. What do we have to do? Remove CO2. Can we do it? Yes. We have the technology. Yes. Does the technology hurt the economy? No, it helps the economy. Therefore, it doesn't work against the uh, Hegel law. It works in favor. Everything is positive. So what's the problem now? The problem is that it takes time and that we don't have time. And that innovation always takes time. And this is major innovation because the idea of cleaning the planet atmosphere is almost preposterous because it's so innovative. And yet, as the U.S. National Academy of Sciences say, and the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel of Climate Change say, there is no other solution, essentially. In most scenarios, there is no solution from catastrophic climate change unless we remove massive amounts of CO2 from the atmosphere. We have the technology to do it. Will we do it in a time scale that matters? That's a big question. Again, um, another very large question um, that I, I really do think that your your book lays out some real solutions to. I highly encourage anyone listening to this to go check it out and read it. It really is. It's well-written and it's very interesting. Um, and actually, as is one of the few things you could read on climate change today that will give you a sense of hope. Um, would you talk for a little bit about both in the space of cutting emissions, which has to happen, and do or engaging in carbon removal or negative emissions, as it's sometimes called, about the competing notions of fairness about that exist between the developed and developing worlds, about who should be, who needs to cut their emissions um, to keep us under our budget, and who's responsible for the the negative emissions, both capacity and technology wise, and in terms of paying for it. Yes, we need to both reduce emissions and remove the CO2 that is already there, the legacy CO2, both. It is not possible to remove the CO2, the quantity that we need to remove, which is approximately 40 gigaton a year, if we continue increasing emissions. So we must reduce emissions, and that means transforming the role of fossil fuels right now. And that's already happening. Now, how would that take place? How would that change take place? Um, as I said before, it is possible to invest in projects that remove CO2 and use the CO2 removed in a trillion dollar market for CO2 that exists this decade, according to McKenzie, um, by using the CO2 a little bit the way we use petroleum now. We can produce polymers with CO2 and these can be polymers that are biodegradable. We can produce um, fertilizers, which are biofertilizers using CO2. We can produce building materials such as cement, aggregate, and even the replacements for all metals, which are the uh, carbon fibers. We can produce desalinated water that is desperately needed in many parts of the world because in the Middle East, all the water, more or less, that is used is desalinated. That requires CO2. 
We can use the CO2 mixed with hydrogen, which is a project that Global Thermostat is involved with, with some of the biggest engineering firms in the world, to produce um, gasoline, which is molecule by molecule, identical to the gasoline we all know, but is produced from air and water, and is not polluting, doesn't emit CO2 in net terms. So all of these things make money. They create a new economy. Can this be done? Yes. Will it be done? Yes, it will be done. Actually, if you look at The Economist, a um, couple of months ago, they published an article saying that the removal of CO2 is the new oil and gas industry, and it has that scope in the trillions, trillions of dollars. And right now, it's already, this decade, the trillion dollars worth, all the things that we can do with the CO2 that is removed from the atmosphere. So you have to think of removing CO2 as farming the atmosphere. The way that we remove petroleum from under the earth, we now have to start removing CO2 from the atmosphere. As I said, farming the atmosphere. Can this be done? Yes. Is it profitable? Yes. Will it happen on a time scale that matters? I don't know. That's what I worry about. I worry about it all the time. But we're trying. Um, and what are the technological and economic barriers to moving it on that time, on a faster time scale? Sorry, can you repeat? Apologies. Yes. What are the technological and or um, economic uh, challenges to getting that process done on a time scale that will avoid, I guess, the, the worst um, potential uh, climate change effects? The challenges are to remove 8 million tons of CO2 by 2025 every year, 8 million, and doubling that amount, the capacity, like 8 million in 2025, 16 million in 2026, 32 million, etc., etc., doubling that capacity. And that exponential growth of removal will lead by 2040 to the removal of approximately 40 billion tons of CO2. And that is enough to resolve this problem. I would say reverse climate change, which is the title of my book. Will that happen? I think so. There some firms like, for example, some of the biggest investment firms in the world, like BlackRock, and like um, um, Citibank and Barclays Bank, etc. They are all very uh, focused on investment in sustainable sectors. So the investment in these sectors will clearly accelerate the path of removal of CO2 that is needed. And we are because we have the leading world technology for removing CO2, we are focusing more than anything on increasing the scale of removal as opposed to uh, increasing money. Because, you know, money is very important. I'm sure nobody here will disagree with me that money is very important. But the reality of it is that uh, you can make all the profits you want, 
But unless we remove the CO2, those profits are not going to buy you very much because at the end of the day, our civilization is at stake here and human humans may go extinct as we know them today. So there is a lot of support from the investment community, but the change needed is enormous. And it's not clear that people will accept and will uh, proceed with the rate of change that is needed. As I, I already gave you the numbers. It is possible. Will it be done? I think it will be done. I don't know if it will be done in the time scale that matters, but we are desperately trying to do it. And actually, interestingly enough, governments, which are very challenged these days, as you might have noticed, all over the world, in Europe, in the Americas, in Asia, everywhere. Uh, governments are probably not the most immediate solution to this problem. So I view the financial structure and within that, the carbon market, which has proven to be, as I mentioned before, to be able to solve the problem, critical. But in this case, what's needed is not so much to charge for over-emitting, but rather to invest in carbon removal projects all over the world. And we don't have any more the division between the North and the South, the rich and the poor, when we think that it is money, financial resources that must flow to the developing nations for the building of the carbon removal facilities that it takes because the developing nations are about to double their energy consumption. So if they double the consumption of energy produced from fossil fuels, the whole world will perish, essentially. And what I'm telling you is completely agreed by the International Energy Agency, etc. So there's no debate about this. So what we need to do is for global investment to be focused on bringing funds to developing nations so they can build energy facilities that remove CO2 from the atmosphere, the way that I just said before. Now, you may say, well, we heard about that, and that will never happen because the rich nations are never going to invest in the poor nations, and that has been the problem all along, etc., etc. Not so fast. In fact, what I explained to you is that the investment by the carbon market clean development mechanism of the United Nations in China, into China, led to the enormous transformation in 2020, right now, of making solar energy the cheapest way to produce energy in the world, the cheapest way to fight against poverty, because without energy, you cannot fight against poverty. So the doubling of energy used by developing nations is now poised to be our success or our demise. If we double energy production in developing nations using the solar revolution that I told you about, then this could mean success. If instead we double energy production in developing nations by using fossil fuels, that could spell the end of the civilization that we know, as we said. So 
Which one will be? Well, the beauty of it is that the market actually does operate. And that, as I said before, using the clean development mechanism, the Chinese have done the, the, the solar revolution. And now solar energy is the most cost-effective way to produce photovoltaic uh, solar energy to produce um, the energy that we need in the world. So, as I said, a kilowatt hour can be produced cheaper, about two cents per kilowatt hour, than with solar than it is produced with coal, natural gas, or petroleum. And that makes sense from the business point of view. And it can be used to do two things. One is combat poverty, because what you need is to give people energy or give access to energy so that they can produce and fight against poverty. But the second thing is solar energy is available to everybody because the sun shines for everybody. Not so much in places like England, for example, but on the whole, solar energy is much better distributed than it is in the case of petroleum. Only few few countries have petroleum, but most countries have access to sun, sun and wind. And that's what we need to activate now. We do that and we do it well, then we're transforming the world economy in the right direction and in a more egalitarian relation, uh, direction. And I wanted to say our technology, the removal technology, is also more egalitarian because it produces CO2, which is now replacing petroleum, as I mentioned before, from air. And the sun shines for everybody, and air is available to everybody for free. So we are finally in a stage of human development where we can make energy available to everybody just about the same way and lead, therefore, to a much more egalitarian society, and that will happen. So the question is how fast. Now, I am, for that reason, creating financial instruments that are based on all the above. And uh, actually, I am not just creating them, but starting the process. We already have a patent time pending, and we are starting the process of putting them in action in a way that will make finance available to everybody who wants to remove CO2. The same way that the solar revolution has led to financial mechanisms to make money available to everybody who wants to shift to solar photovoltaic. I think I said enough. I think I responded to all your questions. But if I haven't, let me know. No, you definitely have. Um, I have um, one more question on topic and then our, our closing question for the um for the the network. But my the last thing, I just wanted you to tell me about where you see the technology that your firm is developing, like what you have in the pipeline that you think is going to be really exciting coming out in the next couple of years that's going to allow us to accelerate this process. Um, you mentioned that you're working with some of the largest engineering firms in the world. I was just, I was curious if you could give our listeners a little insight into some exciting like new ways that we might be able to do carbon removal or carbon um, negative processes in the future. Sure. Um, one company cannot do this. 
it would be for Lee to expect one company to resolve this global problem. So in particular, we cannot produce enough carbon removal plants to remove 40 gigatons of CO2 per year because there is a law in technology, you can call it rights law, with the W, w at the beginning, rights, that says that you cannot double capacity faster than every 18 to 24 months. And to reach the levels within the next decade that are needed, we need to more or less double capacity every year. So while a single firm cannot do it, many firms can do it. So there is no way than to adapt a model, adopt a model, an economic model, where you distribute the production so that you have many firms engaged, many engineering firms engaged in the production of tens of thousands of these plants. Is it possible? Yes, I told you what the Chinese did. In about 10 years, they decreased the cost of solar photovoltaics by 80% by building tens of thousands of solar photovoltaic plants for which they used, as I said, the financial mechanism of the Kyoto Protocol, which is called the Clean Development Mechanism, but also their own resources. So it can be done. How long? I said 10 years. Is it possible? Yes, the Chinese did it with the solar revolution, the photovoltaic revolution. Why do I say they've done it? Because they dropped the price of solar photovoltaic by 80% in about 10 years. And if we drop the cost by 80%, all of a sudden, everybody has access to cheap CO2, which is a way, a way of saying cheap petroleum, but cheap is a petroleum equivalent, but is clean CO2. And CO2 has a huge international market that even the economist recognizes can replace or can have the magnitude of the oil and gas market. This is accepted by Bloomberg, by uh, McKinsey, uh, by The Economist, is now well known. So that's what we need to do. You ask me what to do. We need to drop prices. How to drop prices? Increase capacity, which means build, as the Chinese did with solar energy, build tens of thousands of these plants. For that reason, you need to engage the largest and the best engineering firms in the world, because a single company cannot do it. I already explained, rice law won't allow it. We cannot do it. But we can do it if we work in partnership with the largest engineering firms in the world, such as, you know all the names better than I do, a German firm such as Siemens. They, they do the best you know, equipment building anywhere. So does Volkswagen. So does Black and Rich in the United States or the Wood Group. And there are dozens of the top engineering firms in the world that can achieve what the Chinese did already in terms of building tens of thousands of solar photovoltaic plants and drop the cost by 80%. That's what they did. Can we do it again? Yes. And that's what we have to do. And that's why it's so critical to engage the best engineering firms in the world, the largest and the best. So that's what we're trying to do. And we're creating a consortium. I'm not going to be able to give you a lot of names, but I already gave a lot of names 
of firms that we are uh, working with to try to achieve this. It is possible and it will happen. As I said, the question is when, because the time is very tight. So I try to keep an optimistic point of view and work as hard as possible. But many days I feel that we won't succeed. And it's, it's really it's really tragic. And I hope I hope I'm wrong. Traditionally on the New Books Network, we ask people as our last question what they're working on next. But honestly, this entire interview has summarized what it is that you're currently working on and seem to be dedicating all of your energies, um, as are all of us who are in this field, to attempting to, um, you know, leave a world to our children. And I guess for me, my older self. Um, And, you know, um, yeah. So I just I want to thank you for coming on the network. Um, I want to highly recommend um, that anyone listening to this go check out your book. It's called Reversing Climate Change, How Carbon Removals Can Resolve Climate Change and Fix the Economy. It's available just about anywhere that books are sold. Um, The co-author is Peter Ball. Um, I want to give credit to everyone who worked on it. Um, Do you have a favorite local bookshop you'd like to shout out that you can get the book at? Um, If you don't, that's okay. Okay. Um, And so with that, I will uh, let you go. Thank you very much for coming on the New Books Network. Thank you. And my best regards to each one of your listeners. I don't know which book book, uh, book uh, shop we can use in your area, but um, I, I think in every bookshop you can find a copy of this book. And I look forward to hearing from you if you have interesting comments. And more importantly, uh, to your cooperation, because this is a global enterprise. This has to be done by all of us. And we need to engage everybody in this process. So thank you very much. And I look forward to working with all of you.